Take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Recognize that maybe some people who have not uh, met me before. I'm Simon Maring. I'm the rector of All Saints. And if you're new to the Episcopal Church, there's another way of saying senior pastor. And I've just come back from a pilgrimage in Greece following in the footsteps of Paul, who went and got into all sorts of trouble across Asia Minor and what now is Greece, Macedonia, baptizing and uh, telling people the good news of Jesus. So yes, at the end of this sermon, there will be an altar call. There won't be. It's okay. You don't need to look up what time the service starts at the cathedral. You are safe here. I want to ask a question essential for the baptized life and in fact for life in general. When you see another person, do you assume the best or assume the worst? Let me tell you a parable from recent history, of course, in the United Kingdom, where I am originally from. I'm a little, originally a little east of Atlanta, where I grew up. Uh, we are mourning the loss of Elizabeth II, who came into her own in many ways, as did her father, George VI, in the Second World War. You may be well familiar that part of the campaign in the Second World War by the German Luftwaffe for the German Air Force was to carry out a blitz, a nine-month bombing campaign on, uh, visited upon London and many of the major cities and towns of Great Britain. And the, part of the rationale for that campaign was a belief that persisted at the time, in fact, persisted before that time and has persisted since that if you put human beings under enough stress, they will revert to their animalistic nature. It's called the veneer theory, that under the veneer of civilization, we're just beasts after all. I don't believe that, looking at these beautiful children. But it was a prevalent idea at the time. And so the thought was from German high command, if we can just bomb these Brits, eventually we won't have to fight them because they'll break and they'll be under the surface reverting to this uh, war of all against all, to quote Hobbes. That they'll be fighting each other and it will collapse in on itself. So a couple of months into the bombing that saw 80,000 bombs dropped on London alone, killing over 40,000 people, a Canadian psychiatrist, Dr. John McCurdy, went around the east end of London finding craters and, and remnants of housing, an extraordinary scene that we would associate perhaps with uh, modern-day uh, wars in places like Aleppo, Syria. Hard to believe that this was the east end of London. Expecting to see people carrying in a corner or hiding underground or fighting on the streets, but no. What he found was people going about their business, children playing soccer on the sidewalk. A police officer, he describes it in his diary, a police officer so bored with the passing of traffic that he almost fell asleep. A shopper haggling with a shopkeeper over their goods. Nobody hiding under the ground and nobody looking up at the sky. He even saw a shopkeeper whose uh, shop was only partially now present saying on a sign on the front door that still remained, 
more open than usual. <laughs> and a local pub had this sign and chalk on, the, on, the, on, on a piece of brick. Our windows are gone, but our spirits are excellent. Come in and try them. <laughs> it was very demoralizing for the Germans. For the Brits, you'd think, well, we've learned a lesson here. Renew a sustained period of bombing on a population of civilians will not have the effect that we thought it would. It won't demoralize them. It'll pick them up. That wasn't what the British thought. Not for the first time, the British were convinced that they were exceptional. <laughs> it must be that stiff upper lip that kept the Brits going all that time. So tell you what, we'll plan our own campaign. You know how the story ends. Three times as many bombs were dropped on Germany than had been dropped during the Blitz. Over half of the towns, villages, and cities of Germany were destroyed during the Second World War. And the impact wasn't that those Germans are surely going to collapse in on themselves and they'll be fighting in the streets of Berlin. It wasn't at all, of course. They grew in compassion and enabliness. And perhaps crucially, German tank and aircraft production increased tenfold. It was so bewildering to people at the time that a group of, I don't know why they were Americans, but American economists started to study the fact. Why did this happen? And they studied the impact of the bombing on the longevity and on the loss of life in the war and concluded that the war had been extended by several months and the loss of life greatly increased by those two decisions, driven by an assumption that we might expect the worst in people not the best. Now I know that none of this applies to any of you. I can see the halos shimmering above your heads. But let me do a little poll in the field as they like to say. How many people here watch the news or read the news on your phone or tablet? One or two of you are, the choir never read the news, but so too busy uh, learning music, but the rest of us do. Well, I discovered something reading a fascinating book about this. Uh, there's something known as the mean world syndrome. You may be suffering from it without knowing the fact. George Gerben, a sociologist, said that people who follow the news, doesn't matter how you do it, are more likely to believe that people only care about themselves and that we as individuals are helpless to better the world at large. It's just such a vast collection of problems that really, can't, as an individual, I can do nothing about it. It gets worse, sadly. If you are an avid newsreader, maybe you're checking your phone several times a, I don't know, fill in the blank, time, a day, hour, minute, you're more prone to cynicism, no surprise there, misanthropy and pessimism. You're more likely than others to be stressed and depressed. So here's a bit of pastoral advice for the week ahead. If you find yourself waking up on Tuesday feeling a little bit in the blues, a little bit depressed, here's my advice. Turn off the news, fast from the news for three days, and I guarantee by Friday morning you feel a whole lot better. It raises the question of what shapes us, what forms us. And the church is in the formation business. We're in the people business. We're in God's business. What is the shape of our heart? that dictates or influences at least the shape of our lives. So we have this beautiful story in Luke's gospel of the good shepherd. 
the shepherd that has 99 of his fold or her fold, who knows, safely in the pen or wherever they kept them. But he's going out to find that one. What does that say to us about us? What does it say to us about the one who searches for us? What it says to about us is that we are findable. That there's no corner of our life that becomes so dark and dreadful that somehow it's beyond the redemption of God. Somehow beyond God's light being able to shine. No dead end that we can find ourselves where it's no bad decision. That we're not just the, the product of our worst day. Our most broken relationship. That we're the product of grace. That we're beloved in the eyes of God. That we are findable. But what's even more powerful about this story is that we are worth finding in the first place. The shepherd leaves those 99 sheep not because the shepherd doesn't care about those 99 sheep, but believes that that one sheep is worth finding. Let's just take that in for a moment. The working assumption of God about God's creation, God's uh, creation in humankind, is that we are very good, that we are of infinite value. The best possible assumption about others. God doesn't know what it means to be cynical. God knows what it means to love us thoroughly. So let's think what we're up to here with Francis and Catherine and Samuel and Sophie. I love how Sophie is already moving in the Holy Spirit over there. (laughs) It's so pivotal that baptism is at the center of our life of faith. The Episcopal Church decided to place it in the middle of the village and not to the side. That we would say this matters to us. Going through uh, the in the foot leading, going through and following the footsteps of Paul in now modern day Greece is fascinating. He got himself into all sorts of trouble, arguments and arrests and beatings and times in jail and earthquakes. Nearly caused a riot in Ephesus. It's extraordinary account. And he was particularly keen to do one thing, and that was to baptize. To say, it doesn't matter who you are, male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. And we might add to that list on and on and on. You have a place at the table of fellowship. You have a place in the kingdom of God. Everybody is worth finding. And Paul was something of an ecclesiastical salesman. He wanted to find everybody. That nothing should be a barrier from that transformation that had happened to him. Now, I don't know what your roots are. I know that in this part of the country, if you scratch an Episcopalian under the service, you find a Baptist. That might be true of you. So maybe you think that Paul saw a literal light on the road to Damascus and he heard a voice from heaven and that's how it all happened. Who knows? But we do know that Paul was convicted and convinced that his life had to look differently and that he wanted that gift of transformation for others. He talks about it. Uh, ceaselessly in the New Testament about how we need to be a new creation. Not that there's something terribly wrong with us. Baptism is not the, a right in the life of the church that says we better splash some water on these babies' heads, otherwise they're not quite right. It's an affirmation that already 
God loves them and accepts them and embraces them from the beginning of their life and into the next life. It's an affirmation of what already is. But we're called to be a new creation because we're called to be formed by something heavenly so we can direct our lives earthly. Shaped by heaven to serve the earth. So we should take baptism seriously. Not in the sense that we make sure we have our, our baptismal gown on straight, which is fine, of course. And you really can make no mistakes in what's about to happen. But we should remember what we are called to be formed by. That each of these children, just like each of you and me, is worth finding. And so that's my prayer and encouragement that we may be people open to being formed and reformed, reshaped, particularly when the world is more cynical than we might hope, to be people who will hold on to that promise of grace that each person is made to be a vessel of God's glory. And so when you say, we will, when you're asked whether you will uphold these persons in a life of faith in Christ, that you'll live out that promise, and what you expect to find the next person you meet. I offer this quote from Gandhi to end. If you don't see the face of God in the next person you encounter, stop looking. Keep the faith. Amen.